Okay, welcome uh, all of you uh, to this uh, this uh, forum on religion uh, event, public lecture uh, by Charles Hirschkind. Uh, and let me just say a few words first about uh, this event itself. Um, as I said, it's part of the forum on on religion. The forum on religion itself is part of uh, the program uh, for the study of of religion and uh, and non-religion. Um, and we have, uh, we have several components uh, within that uh, program. It's kind of a research program, and it also has a teaching uh, component. And then this, uh, this component with a lot of events, we have a seminar series, uh, and now also uh, public lectures. Um, the event itself has been, uh, has been sponsored by both the Program for the Study of Religion and Non-Religion and the Department uh, of Anthropology. Uh, and we're very happy to host uh, Charles Hirschkind uh, here. Uh, Charles Hirschkind is professor, associate professor uh, of uh, social cultural anthropology at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and also director for the, of the program uh, for the study of religion. Um, is that right? Yes. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, at, uh, at Berkeley. Uh, he has published many, many works, uh, but his most famous, I think, are, first of all, uh, co-edited volume um, with David Scott, which is uh, titled Powers of the Secular Modern, and even more so his monograph, which came out in uh, 2006 and is called uh, The Ethical Soundscape, Cassette Sermons and Isla Islamic Counterpublics. Since then, he has uh, published many articles um, in very prominent uh, journals and is currently working on uh, research in, in Spain, uh, about which he still has to publish a lot, I think, in the, in the future. You weren't supposed to say that. Um, yeah. Uh, it's working on that now. Uh, but also still kind of very much involved in events that are uh, taking place in Egypt. Uh, and that's also what he is, will be talking about uh, today. So the title of his public lecture is uh, Salafi Islam, Online Ethics and the Future of the Egyptian Revolution. Thank you very much, Matthias, and thanks to the Department of Anthropology for getting me over here. Today I want to speak about some aspects of what is called the Salafi movement and talk about some of the forms of political thought and action specific to that movement. For anyone who has worked in the Middle East as long as I have, the term Salafi is disorienting. While I was living in Egypt during the mid-1990s, I don't remember having heard anyone use the word to designate a particular type of religious person. Many people spoke about the menhaj as-salaf as-salih, the path of the pious ancestors, and various associations such as the Alexandria-based Dawa as-salafiyya, or the Salafi call, had been in existence since the 1970s. But the term did not yet designate a type of person or a religious movement as it has come to during the last 10 years. Salafi had yet to be formed into what Ian Hacking calls a kind. Because I want to talk about some aspects, of, some aspects of this movement, including the media forms that have accompanied and shaped its development, 
it's worth pausing at the outset to briefly examine the recent mutations of this term and its impact in reshaping the terrain of Egyptian political and religious practice and debate. When I first started hearing Western academics use the term Salafi to distinguish some Muslims from others, I assumed the word was doing more or less the same rhetorical labor that fundamentalists had long been doing, lumping together those Muslims who, in their political views or style of religiosity, provoke discomfort to secular liberal sensibilities. This assumption was not entirely wrong. Scholars and journalists frequently define Salafism in opposition to moderate or modernist Islam, with the Muslim Brotherhood standing as the foremost exemplar of the latter in the Egyptian context. But this contrast holds up rather poorly on a variety of counts. It is striking, for example, how many of the prominent figures now associated with the Salafi movement have long-standing ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. The list includes not only Hazm Abu Ismail, the presidential candidate who was backed by the Anur and other so-called Salafi parties, until he was disqualified from the elections, but many popular preachers, such as Wagdi Gunaim, Fauzi Said, and others. Even such a luminary of the Salafi scene in Egypt, the popular preacher Muhammad Hassan, while not a Brotherhood member himself, has frequently praised the Brotherhood, Brotherhood-affiliated sheikhs. Indeed, in a March 2011 interview, Hassan described the Brotherhood as those who most deserve and are most competent to enter Parliament. This does not mean that there are no disagreements between religious and political thinkers associated with the Brotherhood and those now attached to the newly formed Salafi political parties, only that those disagreements don't map onto two opposing blocks. Indeed, many of the same points of conflict uh, that scholars refer to in order to distinguish Salafis from the Brotherhood have also taken place within the Brotherhood for many years and continue to do so. For example, a key argument today among so-called Salafi associations is whether participation in national political life is compatible with or subversive of their primary commitment to promoting piety, the same argument that has divided members of the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist associations in Egypt for decades. So the same arguments that you find today among Salafis um, are very similar and overlap with arguments that you find across the sort of Egyptian Islamist and political spectrum. To what extent is the so-called Salafi movement grounded in a particular interpretive tradition within Islam? Many scholars have argued that Salafism represents a long-standing theological and juridical trend based in the works of the 14th century scholar Ibn Taymiyyah and characterized by a pronounced emphasis on, the, on purifying Islam of unorthodox innovations and a constructionist approach to the Quran and Sunnah as the sole sources necessary for guiding the Islamic Ummah. While I don't have space here to elaborate further on the theological viewpoints internal to this interpretive tradition, it is worth noting that most of the key elements of this tradition an emphasis on dawah, the, practices of, the practice of encouraging others to piety in their comportment, the practice of hizbah, commanding right and forbidding wrong, a rejection of the four schools of legal reasoning in favor of a direct engagement with the Quran and Sunnah. These elements, albeit interpreted differently, have been central to a wide spectrum of Islamic reform movements within the Middle East over the last few centuries. They were core principles of the Egyptian militant group, the Gama al-Islamiyah, as they were for the Ansar al-Sunnah Muhammadiyah, a preaching and welfare association founded in Egypt in the 1920s, often noted as an early exponent of Salafi viewpoints. 
Indeed, there are few preachers in Egypt today who don't call on their listeners to incorporate these ethical inter and interpretive precepts and practices into their lives, though they may disagree about the political and moral stances entailed in doing so. Thus, while we may speak about a broad current of theological, juridical, and ethical reasoning that plays an important role today in structuring debate among Egyptian Muslims, there is no sociological entity or religious kind, to return to Hacking's term, that corresponds to or embodies that current. In this light, it is not surprising that authors who use this term find themselves having to speak about varieties of Salafism, jihadi, activists, scholastic, and so on, or shades of Salafism, or noting that, quote, disagreement is particularly rife among the Salafi movement, as a number of authors have put it. However, as distinct from Islamic fundamentalist, a term of similar ideological function, and always used to designate problematic others, Salafi has now come to be used by some in Egypt as a term that one applies to oneself, as found, for example, on the popular website Anna Salafi, or I am a Salafi, and many others. What are the implications of the recent appropriation of this term by some Muslims in Egypt as a marker of identity for our analysis of religion and politics in the country? Does this use endow the term with a certain objectivity or analytical utility? In my view, not as much as many claim. I would note that none of Egypt's so-called Salafi political parties that were founded last year, Hizb al-Nur, Hizb al-Fadila, Hizb al-Salah, mention the term in their founding statements of the party's identity. And while the popular preachers associated with this trend frequently refer to the menhej salafia, it is extremely rare from what I have seen that they would refer to themselves as Salafis. Rather, they identify themselves as Muslims and understand their emphasis on following the example of the Salaf as-Salih, the pious ancestors, as necessary for the revitalization of the traditions of Islam. In other words, the term remains for the most part one applied to other people whose religious or political practices are seen to diverge more or less threateningly from secular liberal norms or simply from us. Much of the reporting on the recent demonstrations in the Middle East that occurred in response to the anti-Islam film circulated on YouTube show the ideological impulse of the term. And I have a slide. Just, these are just a couple images of, of pictures taken during the, anti, uh, during the protests that broke out following the circulation of the film on YouTube, the anti-Islam film, and that were wide, widely reported as a Salafi protest or Salafi organized. Um, one will not recognize any Salafis in most of the pictures one finds of those. In fact, you can see some people wearing the Guy Fawkes masks and Indeed, quite a few were, which are people who clearly have no uh, affiliation with the Salafi movement. Um, here in a crowd also, out, also in Cairo, um, filmed during the demonstration, um, one sees very little evidence of active participation of uh, members of the Salafi movement. And indeed, when I looked on the websites of those movements, many of them w cautioned their, uh, their members to not participate. But Salafi became a kind of catch-all term to point to a kind of dangerous trend and therefore sort of dangerous manifestations of political and politics and religion and has served as a kind of blanket even when it has very little analytical value as one sees here.
I begin with this brief excursus on terminology because in writing this presentation, I have found the term Salafi, once uh, disabused of much of its analytic pretensions, to be useful, or at least unavoidable, as a way to manage some more awkward locutions. So with that behind me, let me turn to some of the main concerns of the presentation. As is well known, when the large demonstrations began in Tahrir Square on January 25th last year, a number of prominent religious figures, some affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood and some not, took a skeptical, if not condemnatory, stance toward the event. Senior Brotherhood leaders withheld judgment during the first days of the uprising, though they soon followed the lead of their younger cadres and gave the demonstrations their endorsement. Other views, ranging from cautious support to harsh rejection, were expressed by non-Brotherhood leaders, some of the most critical coming from scholars and preachers associated with Alexandria's Dawa Salafia, a group that includes among its members a number of the most popular preachers from Egypt's satellite television stations. While members of this group expressed a range of often shifting opinions during the course of the uprising, many argued that the social chaos unleashed by the confrontation with the government was too great a price to pay in exchange for bringing down the corrupt and tyrannical regime. Liberal critics interpreted the position taken by these so-called Salafi religious figures as evidence of the, mov of the movement's complicity with the regime, reflecting a long-standing agreement, in their view, whereby the preachers would refrain from political activity and, in exchange, the government would allow their television stations to air. Following the removal of Mubarak, members of the Dawah Salafiya, as well as others associated with this current, decided to form political parties and to put forward candidates to contest the parliamentary and later presidential elections. Prior to this moment, the founding figures of these parties had generally advised their followers to avoid participating within national political institutions, arguing that such institutions in their current state were incompatible with and corrosive of Islamic forms of piety and social life. In what follows, I want to look more closely at some of the contrasting arguments and comments put forward by Muslim figures associated with this movement, both in regard to the uprising and to, new, and to the new political landscape left in its aftermath. In doing so, I hope to bring out some aspects of the form of political reasoning that these arguments draw from and exemplify, one that departs in significant ways from our normative understandings of political life and the role of the state within, political, within politics. I'm particularly concerned with the way Salafi scholars and preachers frame and interpret questions of state power and authority, and the extent to which their assessment of the political is inflected by their strong theological emphasis on the doctrine of Tawheed, the principle of the oneness and sovereignty of God. Many observers have emphasized the newfound willingness of Salafi leaders to, quote, play the political game as a means to to access the mechanisms of state power. While this calculus undoubtedly explains some of the actions taken by the newfound uh, Salafi political parties, it fails to account for the views expressed by many of the sheikhs associated with this trend. I views, I argue, that reflect a commitment to a set of goals that cannot be achieved through a political form based on the absolute sovereignty of the state. The form of political rationality I am concerned with, however, cannot be grasped simply by reference to a set of theological principles, but need be viewed in the context of the sensibilities and practical orientations that characterize the style of authority and religiosity found in the popular quarters where the preachers and leaders of the Salafi movement find their broadest reception.
I turn, therefore, to the practices of media consumption through which viewers and listeners engage with such figures of religious authority. In an earlier study, I emphasized the forms of ethical judgment and sociability sustained through the circulation of religious media in Cairo, particularly cassette-recorded sermons. The Islamic counterpublic articulated through the circulation and consumption of sermon media, I argued, engaged the political obliquely and primarily negatively as an arena of power to be engaged only in so much as it directly undermined the conditions necessary for the cultivation and practice of Islamic virtues. How has the new politicization of Egyptian life affected by the uprisings of last year and the struggles for power that have ensued changed the orientation of the Islamic counterpublic to the national public political arena? How do we understand the changing media ecology of religious discourse in relation to the current political landscape? What are the politics of so-called Salafism? These are the questions that guide my discussion. It is important to note at the outset that there was no unified response to the 2011 demonstrations from the various associations and individuals associated with the Salafi path. Sheikh Yasser Burhami, a leading figure within the Dawa Salafiyya, strongly opposed participation in the uprising throughout its entire unfolding. In contrast, the popular preacher Muhammad Hassan, after initially advising caution, by day five was praising the actions of the demonstrators and joining the crowd on a number of occasions. Another association, the Salafi Movement for Reform, strongly encouraged its followers to participate well before the first day of the protest. A statement put out on the association's website on the 21st of January, four days before the demonstrations began, called on people to join the protest, quote, in order to condemn the offenses of the regime and its crimes against the Egyptian people, its failure to abide by the Sharia, its disdain for human rights, its theft of public wealth. Sheikh Burhami, this is him, uh, opposition to the protest movement echoed the views of a number of other associations, including the Ansara Sunnah Muhammadiyah. So I want to begin with a few of his statements. Burhami, a graduate of Al-Azhar, who now teaches at a preaching school, a preacher training school in Alexandria, had long voiced his opposition to any participation within the institutions of national governance. In an article published in 2008 titled Political Participation and the Balance of Power, he argued to be a part of the political game means to bargain with one's principles. End quote. Is Islamic movements that have entered politics, he notes, quote, have renounced their principles and their Islamic identity in exchange for a political position or for political benefit. Your refusal to be part of the political process is one of the means to protect the Sharia from it. Interestingly, Burhami is not against giving support to candidates in the professional professional unions or student associations, only to those contesting parliamentary elections, insomuch as the latter institutions serve to promulgate rules that violate the precepts of Islam, in his view. So he wasn't against political activity in general, simply against those that, became, that uh, served to ground rules, uh, edicts that would become part of a national constitution. He holds out the possibility that at some point in the future a state compatible with Sharia principles and therefore with the ultimate sovereignty of God might be established. But given the array of forces in the world at present, he argues, such a possibility remains distant. 
Like many of the other leaders of the Salafi trend, Sheikh Burhami frequently refers to the opinions of the Hanafi scholar Muhammad Nasr al-Din al-Albani in regard to the dangers of becoming involved in politics. It's fuzzy, but there aren't too many pictures of him. Writing in the 1960s and 70s, Albani strongly criticized what he saw as the Brotherhood's privileging of politics over religious science, ilm, and doctrine, aqidah, arguing that in the present circumstances, the good policy is to stay away from politics. As he noted during a lecture in 1977, all Muslims agree on the need to establish an Islamic state, but they differ on the method to be employed to attain that goal. For me, only by the Muslims adhering to Tawheed can the causes of this dissension be removed so they may march toward their objective in closed ranks. For Albani, to bring about greater adherence to Tawheed required not political action but the practice of Dawah, the individual and collective activity by which Muslims would eliminate the corruption and illicit innovations that had entered Muslim societies and return to a divinely sanctioned form of life. That is only through the kind of grassroots promotion of piety could that be achieved, not through the means of the agency of the state. Burhami's recourse to the theological tradition uh, that Albani was working within should also be seen in, in the context of the period he grew up in, the 1970s and 80s, precisely when the Dawah movement was spreading throughout the popular quarters of Egyptian cities. In the face of the state's reorientation during this period, away from the provision of services, and toward an intensification of security measures within such neighborhoods, Dawah activists sought to establish an institutional infrastructure independent of the state that would sustain the forms of sociability they saw as proper to a Muslim society. And in this period, many large mosques became sort of institutional hubs providing medical, educational, welfare, all, sorts, all forms of assistance for people, and self-consciously understood that activity as taking people out of the clutches of the state, which they saw as both negligent and corrupting. For many of Burhami's generation, the primary experience of state power was as an impediment to that project. Importantly, this experience did not necessarily lead Dawah activists to adopt an antagonistic stance toward the state, but rather to a certain indifference, based on a recognition of the inadequacy or unreliability of the agency of the state for the ethical transformation they sought to enact. Sheikh Kishk's career may stand as an example. In his sermons, Kishk excoriated the Sadat regime for its brutalities against the Egyptian people, its failure to support the Palestinian cause, its promotion, its promotion of Western cultural forms. At the same time, and despite having been arrested and tortured by the regime, he continued across his life to work within state-run mosques and even to write a regular column in a state newspaper after he, had been for, after he had been forbidden from preaching. That is, while he was already under house arrest and after many years of uh, imprisonment and torture, he continued to write in <coughs> state newspapers. While Kishk does not share Burhami's rejection of political engagement, where they overlap, in my view, is in their relativization of state power. For Kishk, the state appears as a fact of modern life, against which one must remain vigilant, but whose powers are not intrinsically for nor against the project of Islamic reform, but, instead, but stand instead oblique to it. That is why, in contrast to Egypt's militant groups and Islamic political parties of the last decades, 
Capturing the state was never a solution for the Dawa movement to the problems they saw as most pressing. Let's wait for that. <laughs> All right. As I mentioned, Sheikh Burhami's response to the demonstrations was primarily negative, though less so as events progressed. Starting on January 29th, Burhami released a series of statements in which he responded to petitions about the legitimacy of joining the street protests. The first begins, we call on Muslims to cooperate in the protection of public and private property and to be on guard against sabotage, looting, thievery, and aggression against people in order to put an end to the chaos. In a second statement delivered on the 31st, Burhami called on the, quote, preachers, youth, and citizens to protect the blood, lands, and wealth which God has made inviolable, whether the blood of Muslims or non-Muslims, and to oppose the criminal gangs who are spreading corruption, terror, and fear to the peaceful throughout the country. Chaos, or fauda, was one of the terms that many of the sheikhs of the Salafi trend used in expressing their concern with the demonstrations. Some of the Egyptian friends I spoke with on the phone during the uprising some of whom were preachers or Dawah activists, also expressed fear about whether fauda or chaos would disrupt access to food and water or produce conditions of widespread violence, worries that led some of them to feel ambivalent about the events taking place. While many have suggested that the comments of Sheikh Burhami and others who criticized the uprisings reflected an interest in maintaining an existing relationship of mutual benefit with the Mubarak regime, I want to suggest a somewhat different reading belonging to a tradition of Islamic reasoning that is skeptical of the powers of the modern state to bring about desirable reform, Burhami was less likely to see as justified the replacement of the existing regime for another when weighed against the disruptions such an event might cause within the domains of everyday life where the activity of dawah is rooted. The dawah salafia, like most of Egypt's dawah associations, focus their activities in popular quarters where they, where they provide both religious guidance through a variety of means, as well as social services for those who most need them, including medical, educational, and financial assistance. And they also provide religious programming on, on satellite TV, which I will speak about shortly. For many people within these neighborhoods, the value of removing the authoritarian regime, even one widely despised for its brutality and corruption, could not be taken for granted, but had to be weighed against the potential destructiveness the confrontation might unleash. This attitude, I want to suggest, is not an expression of the wisdom of the poor regarding their place within the hierarchies of power upheld by the state, but what I call a relativization of political power affected by, sorry, affected by the principle of divine sovereignty at the heart of the Islamic reform project that thrives within these spaces. From this standpoint, there is no political theology to re resolve the tension between the absolute authority of the state on one hand and of God on the other. Following Mubarak's removal, a number of Salafi leaders who had opposed participation within national political life revised their opinions in light of the new situation. While the Ansar Sunnah Muhammadiyah Association published a number of fatwas on the illegitimacy of participating in the demonstrations, citing Ibn Taymiyyah's judgment that a Muslim ruler who does not show outright infidelity cannot be deposed, whatever injustices he commits, on the question of participating in the elections, their fatwas expressed a more ambivalent position, as in the following from June of last year. Quote, 
Summing up, the basic principle is non-participation. But the evil and corruption that accompany, uh, given the evil and corruptions that accompany the institutions of governance. So non-participation is best. But if in the assessment of the accumulated benefits and acts of corruption, people of knowledge see that the benefits outweigh the acts of corruption, then in that case it is permissible to participate. A number of other members of the Salafi trend have argued that while to contest the elections is to commit an objectionable act, a munkar as it's called, it is permissible if done to correct a more objectionable act. So you can't afford, uh, avoid the corruption or the objectionable act, but it's justifiable if there's a worse one. While I don't have the space here to explore these arguments in greater detail, let me simply highlight the question they pose. Namely, to what extent can such arguments be seen as an accommodation to a state-centric view of political agency, implying that the operations of the modern state can be made compatible with the dictates of divine sovereignty? Or alternatively, should they be seen as founded upon a recognition of the contradiction between divine and political sovereignty, and therefore as grounded in a view of a necessary, but always necessary, flawed and limited engagement with political power? In other words, do such arguments presuppose a political theology, one in which the state is a, can become a vehicle of a project of uh, a divinely grounded project, or in contrast, a mode of reasoning that addressed the modern state from a standpoint indifferent to its primary concepts of public and private, national security, religion, secular, concepts that articulate the domain of state power. As an aside, I would note that the decision uh, to back Abdul Munaim Abu al-Futuh by the Dawa Salafiyah, the candidate who they agreed to back in the elections, um, was not to gain access to the regulatory powers of the state, they, but rather it was to avoid installing a regime that would seek to control their Dawa activities. They worried that if they supported a brotherhood candidate, then the, the brotherhood would take over the very activities of, of promoting popular piety that they themselves were invested in. Um, clearly, there are forces pulling in both of these directions. Right? One direction, the, the use of the state to promote sharia and to implement it as the basis of law, for example. Um, and the other, recognizing a necessary incompatibility between the project of promoting sharia and the instruments of the state. To further interrogate one force pulling toward the latter, let me turn to some of the media practices associated with the Salafi trend. As some of you may know, Muhammad Hassan is one of the preaching stars in the Dawah arena. Prior to achieving his status as a star of satellite television and coming to own one of the most viewed religious stations, Hassan had already garnered immense popularity through the circulation of his cassette-recorded sermons. Moreover, Hassan's audience extends across a wide spectrum of Egyptian society, well beyond those who adopt the Salafi dress style. And this is often not remarked on enough, but if you, for example, uh, take a taxi in Cairo, which I took a lot of, particularly back in the 90s, but up through more recently, one is just as likely to hear someone play, one will hear in the same cab someone play a, a so-called Salafi sheikh, just as much as you'll hear someone from the Brotherhood. And so while uh, analysts tend to emphasize the great distinction between the points of view of these two movements, in actual practice, when you speak to people who, who follow their media and so on, including their television stations, 
you find a style of consumption in which people don't make a great distinction. They appreciate them for different elements, but they are seen as entirely compatible often. Um, let me start by presenting a televised interview with, the, with Hassan, recorded a few days after the start of the uprising. So, this is... Much like Sheikh Burhami, Hassan places great emphasis on the need to protect both life and property and prevent a descent into social chaos. Though as opposed to Burhami, he also signals his support for the cause and action of the protesters in the latter part. Following the fall of the regime, Hassan has become one of those members of the Dawah Salafiyya who has encouraged his followers to play a greater role in the country's political life. In order to get a sense of, of the form of ethical and political life which such highly mediated religious figures contribute to, I want to explore the styles of use and consumption that mediate the reception of Hassan's vast media presence. I begin with a segment of one of Hassan's sermons hosted on YouTube and bearing the title, A Beautiful, Tearful, Fear-Inspiring Segment from the Honorable Sheikh Muhammad Hassan. And I'll just show a few seconds of it. 
recitation. The clip is very of uh, very mediocre quality, and much of it is filming the audience that is very tearful. Um, since his first entry into preaching, Hassan has been known for his mellifluous voice, as well as his ability to engender powerful emotion, emotional responses from his listeners with his impassioned rhetoric. The, quote, fear-inspiring khutbah, or sermon segment, on YouTube, like many of his best-known sermons, concerns death and judgment and consists largely of Hassan's recitation of certain Quranic verses where these themes are found. Besides Hassan's voice and image, the video highlights the collective weeping of, the, weeping of those assembled in the mosque. The video has been visited by over 4 million Internet users since it was first posted around three years ago, making it one of the most accessed videos of Islamic preaching on the YouTube site. The 1,600 comments on the video page provide an entry into thinking about the practices through which such video consumption occurs. While only a small proportion of those who visit the page leave comments, they do give an indication of the form of activity within which the viewing of the video takes place for many. By far, the most common type of response left in the comments section is the supplicatory prayer, or dua. The following taken from the site are typical expressions like, God, we ask for your contentment with us and for our entry into heaven. Um, God is great. May God's will be served. God have, God have mercy on us and forgive us. God place us among those destined for your heaven, and so on. More than two out of three of the comments on the video are dua of this sort, though many of these also include prayers. Many of the others include uh, prayers and praise for Muhammad Hassan himself, that he may go to heaven, and so on. In the context of the Friday mosque khutbah, the sermon at the mosque, such supplicatory expressions are continuously elicited from the congregation and are repeated in a crescendo at its conclusion by both preachers and listeners. Within Islamic homiletic traditions, they are the movements of the tender heart when, with both fear and love, one draws near to God, aided by the pious speech of the preacher. Relocated here onto the YouTube page, these now written expressions from listeners act to mark and define the page as an extension of the moral space of the mosque, and thus to delineate certain norms of participation for those who visit the page. Such comments do more than express a judgment. They perform an ethical response, and by their reception down the page, they secure the authority of a mode of listening, viewing. They provide a visual testament to repeated acts of drawing close to God, a record that serves to attune the eyes and ears of new visitors in a distinctly devotional and ethical direction. In short, this virtual space within which the khutbah segment is presented has taken on a distinct moral framing through the practices of commentary and response. The force of this framing is evident in the scarcity of remarks that diverge from such standpoints of pious engagement. And it's very interesting that on these sites where you find that people do start putting in other kinds of comments, then there's often an abandonment of that by you no longer find the supplicatory prayers and indeed maybe another site with the same video but was somewhat purified of the, of the political comments or, and only having the more uh, pious expressions is initiated anew. This isn't a rule or something but it's a general pattern one sees. 
Let me emphasize that my discussion here in no way implies a judgment about the ethical orientations and religious commitments of the visitors to the Muhammad Hassan web pages. Rather, my comments pertain to the norms of discursive interaction and self-presentation that are evident in the patterns of response and exchange left on these pages. Although the fact that many of the visitors to the sermon web pages may adopt an ethical devotional language uh, may tell us little about their p- personal piety, it does say a lot about how they envision such websites, specifically as spaces appropriate for acts of prayer and devotion. That some people may move on to, pornograph- to a pornographic website after they have viewed a khutbah site does not imply that the invocation of ethical norms on the first site was a sham, any more than the observation that some people lie and cheat after praying at the mosque or the church implies that the mosque or church is really not a space of piety, though both instances do indicate uh, the in- an inadequately cultivated virtues of faith and, and taqwa or fear of God in the Islamic context. Although there are many video clips of interviews and mosque lessons with Muhammad Hassan where he addresses political issues in a direct fashion, their popularity, as measured by the number of visitors to the sites, do not come close to those garnered by his sermons on eschatological and ethical themes, nor do they draw the kind of ethical devotional responses. Video segments that highlight performances of ethical emotional receptivity in particular draw by far the greatest number of viewers and prayerful commentary. Um, I have another clip. I, I don't think it makes sense to show it though because I don't have a translation for it, but I'll just, well, these are just some of the expressions left on the, some of the prayers left on the site. Um, this is a call-in on his television station. He has a call-in show, and in this, this instance, a woman called in and was asked, uh, told him that she had, her sister-in-law had just died and had been an adulteress when she died, and so, uh, and the woman had buried her and done the proper, proper burial with the shroud and so on. And was it all right that she had done this? And uh, it's just not a, totally an uncommon kind of question that you might find on this. But uh, he's trying to respond, but he kind of breaks down and he kept saying, he's, he starts saying, well, God, well, Muhammad says, oh, I can't speak. I'm sorry, I'm so overcome. And this website, which is, it's a kind of standard sort of uh, question about the treatment of the dead and so on. It's been visited by, you know, ten times as many as most other websites in which he answers questions about pious comportment or doctrine and so on. One finds most of the, almost all of the sites that uh, garner great popularity by preachers like him are those in which there's a kind of emotional expression an emotional pious expression in which he enacts a kind of pious act of the heart. And indeed, his breaking down is replete with endless prayers of, oh my God, protect me, oh my God, lead us, may God save that poor woman. Just this sort of emotional, ethical responsiveness uh, performed on camera. And these are what really draw, uh, draw viewers, not the sort of... Ones where, they, where such preachers speak about political issues are very, draw very, far fewer viewers, even though the, for scholars, of course, they attract the scholars a lot who write endlessly about the political viewpoints of them. But for the actual people who consume them, what is most important is the way they model a certain kind of ethical emotional receptivity, I'm arguing.
What can we conclude from this? First, for much of his audience, Hassan is first and foremost a da'iyah, someone who does da'wah, someone who through pious exhortation and the passional performance of Islamic ethical reasoning enables one to cultivate the virtues that incline one toward obedience to God. Listeners and viewers attune to his media-based performances with the ex this expectation and attitude, as is borne out in the comments left on the websites that feature him. While his oratory also extends to political affairs, he does not mediate political opinion but rather a project of Islamic reform, one he contributes to in particular through his ability to embody pious sensibilities and effective states. This is one of the reasons I would suggest why the Salafi leaders were unable to garner the support they sought to mobilize for their chosen candidate in the presidential elections, Abdul Munam Abul Futuh. And they've been incapable of a lot of mass mobilizations. There was uh, just uh, less than two weeks ago a call that had gone out by a number of Salafi associations for a national day of protest in favor of uh, implementing the Sharia. And a total of a thousand people where they expected tens of thousands. And their ability to sort of mobilize people for political events has been much more limited, despite the fact that they had this initial showing at the polls in which they garnered a surprising 25% of parliamentary seats. But their ability to kind of mobilize people around political cause seems much more um, not at all as strong as people initially suggested. Take as another example the career of Fawzi Saeed, another popular preacher frequently associated with the Salafi currents. I used to go to his mosque every week when I lived in Cairo in the 90s. Um, Preaching in the Ramses Mosque in downtown Cairo for many years, Said has long been known as a harsh critic of the Mubarak regime. I would know that throughout the 90s, he frequently invited Muhammad Hassan to, his, to preach at his mosque. He was also the first popular preacher to join the demonstrations, which he adamantly and passionately supported from Tahrir Square throughout the 18 days. Yet despite the overtly political dimensions of his oratory, Said's reputation among his followers has always been based on the excellence of his preaching on the topic of Sifat Allah, or God's divine attributes, and the Asma al-Husna, the divine names. Skillful preaching on the divine attributes aims to instill in an audience the effective and behavioral attitudes specific to each attribute, understood as the divine qualities pondered over and incorporated into one's ethical equipment. So when I lived in Cairo, people, when everyone mentioned Fawzi Said, it's, each preacher had a kind of reputation for what they excelled in. And he would be, oh, you've got to hear when he speaks about the Asma al-Husna. He can speak about those names in a way that um, a topic very far from even the fact that he was uh, right, an outspoken critic of the regime. What really drew people to him was ability to elaborate on those in a way that made them available to people. And those names are very tied up with the sets of emotions that connect people um, you know, that established their sort of passional connection to the divine. In my view, the authority of preachers like Fawzi Said and Muhammad Hassan owes not to their skillful interweaving of religion and politics. What is unique about their discourse and the practices and of reception and response they mediate, um, that mediate its circulation and uptake, is its indifference to these categories and the questions of state power with which they are profoundly entwined. 
the categories of religion and secular, or, the, or religion and politics. As a useful comparison, Hussein Agrama's observations about the tradition of fatwa giving in Egypt also pertains to the practice of dawah that these sheikhs engage in. Agrama notes, the practice of the fatwa, as he observed in the fatwa council, does not partake of what he calls the problem space of secularism, that ensemble of questions and stakes anchored by the question of where to draw the line between religion and politics and where the limits of religion should be. It is neither secular nor opposed to secularity. Rather, the concerns of secularity are not its own. The tradition of preaching these sheikhs exemplify, I am arguing, and that attunes the responsiveness and habits of their viewing audiences, likewise stands outside the entire sort of dialectic or the question of secular, of is it secular or is it religious, or is it politics and is it religion, um, which animate, right, which are key to the, to the way the, the state, the organization of the state in the way in which it makes distinctions between is this properly secular and is this, is this religion and should it appear in this way in public and so on. And the state in Egypt has played a very heavy-handed role in the organization of religious life since, uh, well, since the beginning of the 20th century, in which all the mosques have always been under state control, which is an attempt to control the content of sermons, an attempt to limit what can take place in a mosque, and so on. Um, they've never been that successful at it because the state has limited resources, but that's been their attempt. So let me move to a conclusion. A recent article in the lang English language newspaper, Egypt Independent, focused on the lives of three AUC students who had, in their words, been drawn into the Salafi lifestyle, but had subsequently become disillusioned by it and returned to their former ways. In a reflection on the unsuitability of Salafis for political office, one of the three young women notes, they're not politically astute, she says. A Brotherhood MP would not stand up to make the call to prayer in Parliament. But a Salafi did because he felt he had to please God regardless of who he angered. A Brotherhood politician would know how to play it right. The act attributed by the student to political naivete, uh, an inadequate capacity to discern political context from those appropriate to religious worship, disrupts the parliamentary proceedings, angering some of the representatives who view it as an unwarranted introduction of religion into politics. In contrast, I would suggest that the disruptive force of the act lies not in its blurring of the boundary between religion and politics, a blur that anyway is essential to the powers of the secular state, but in its indifference to the twin categories themselves. Note that I... That I um, Note that I do not mean to say that the kind of practical reason I have discussed here is ethical and hence not political. The activity of dawah entails confrontation and suasive argument. Even violence may be required, and some argued, uh, in order to build a community that accords with divine sovereignty. But this form of political activity is not one that can be squared with the principle of state sovereignty and the techniques of power deployed by the national security state. Can such, a conception of, can such a conception of politics be accommodated with the democratic institutions of governance? Well, spaces and times for prayer can surely be incorporated into parliamentary procedure, just as prayer time can be enforced in schools and factories, the requirements of worship talked in schools. Religion, in other words, can become a means by which the state extends its powers into ever more domains of social life. Right? Gender can be regulated uh, according to some sort of conservative mores. That is, the state can surely be used as a vehicle to implement some vision of moral life. Um, 
in a way that rightly worries many of us. Indeed, many of the Salafi leaders have spoken positively about the use of the state's legislative and administrative institutions to ensure public compliance with Islamic duties, something that has rightfully worried many Egyptians. At the same time, many adherents of this trend are also expressing trepidation over the entry into politics, given their tradition's long-standing critique of the corrupting influence of politics on even the most virtuous. Albani's critique of the Brotherhood that I mentioned above was that they sought to create an Islamic state by political means, something Albani saw as contradictory and impossible to achieve. Let me conclude by reference to two political events that have just taken place just recently. On September 2nd, a week ago, this demonstration I mentioned took place. It was organized by a few Salafi associations. About a thousand, far less than the tens or hundreds of thousands expected, participating, calling on President Morsi to implement the Islamic Sharia. At the same time, members of the Salafi Front, a large association founded just after the revolution, announced that they were forming a new political party to be called Ashab, or the people. There were two parties founded, interestingly, by Salafi parties in the last two weeks. One called the people, the other called the nation. According to the party's spokesman, the existing Islamic parties didn't pay sufficient attention to some issues like the rights of Nubians, as well as those of farmers and workers. Ashab will deal with these issues as top priorities. Instead of using state power to implement divine law, the party will enlist it to protect Nubians, farmers, and workers. Despite the party's ties to the Salafi front, here we see the abandonment of political action as a vehicle for pious reform. Um, for the promotion of the Sharia Islamiyah and its circumscription to what the party calls rebuilding Egypt and establishing political stability. Both these trends seem to me uh, strong possibilities today. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Charles, for a wonderful, <coughs> very rich and thought-provoking uh, presentation. Uh, we will have about 30, 30 minutes uh, to, take, uh, to take questions, and I will kind of, we will take like three questions at a time, and then uh, um, the speaker will have the possibility to respond to them. But I want to kind of to use my position as, uh, as chair to at least uh, ask a first question. And I was, I was struck by, by several things in this very rich presentation. Uh, one, one of the things that I was struck by was uh, when there was the discussion about whether or not uh, the Salafi should kind of be involved in the revolution, etc., it almost, and, and, and be entangled, uh, be involved with the state, it almost seemed as if it was a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you know, it was kind of trying to sort out which was kind of less evil, like involvement or non-involvement, possibility mm -hmm. of chaos. Um, uh, versus uh, uh, some other problems. A very kind of, you know, it seems very rational, almost subdued kind of uh, balancing of what is, uh, what, you know, what, what one should do, which is quite unlikely, I think, to attract a great, uh, you know, great, uh, or to produce a lot of fervor and enthusiasm, I would say. Whereas on the other hand, you were then talking about the kind of the, uh, the various prayers, etc., and you said, like, on the, on, the, on the Internet, these would especially attract attention when they were mm -hmm. the most emotional, when they were apparently kind of able to kind of to touch the heart 
uh, and came across as most authentic. And what I, wa I wanted to ask is like, whether there is kind of a, an in inherent kind of tension between these two aspects, so, you know, which, which may actually very much limit the possibilities that Salafi leaders have in kind of becoming involved in political affairs, precisely because they have to kind of to negotiate the authenticity versus the cost-benefit analysis. Yes, I think that you're very right to point to that tension. Um, and I'm not defining, of course, a uh, that real Salafism, or if, if there existed such a thing, which there doesn't, or that the, the groups that are called Salafi are either, you know, essentially anti-political or pro-political. What I'm noting is, right, of course, the certain sort of debates within and tensions across these groups. There is clearly a strong move to transform them into agents of political reform, just like any other political party, and therefore to implement, you know, and that in that sense they would uh, be proponents of a whole set of very worrisome, um, uh, worrisome measures in in regard to cops, perhaps, in regards to uh, gender issues, um, and so on. So I'm talking about when just I'm just sort of qualifying my answer by saying this is not uh, I'm not it's not that I'm not recognizing one some of the actual dangers that are this trend represents, which I do think are quite serious. Um, but to note that this what gets lumped under this trend is also a, a kind of movement that doesn't. Um, that resists its sort of uh, transplant on into the political. And this resistance one sees in the very sort of, both the sort of style of the mass consumers of it, but also in the rational debates among the leaders who are of a long sort of analysis about the dangers of getting involved in politics. Um, so you're right, it is, when I spoke about the sort of, the way that preachers were appreciated for the way, the, the way they mediated kind of passional ethics. Um, it's not that that can simply be translated into argument, you know, meet us on Thursday in Tahrir and we're going to bring down the state or something. And if you look at Salafi participation during the demonstrations, there were people participating when almost all the sheikhs were saying don't, and they, they seemed to have, it's not that they sort of guided a contingency and said, now you're going to appear. Um, nor did the Brotherhood for that matter, right? There were Brotherhood, particularly the younger members of the Brotherhood were extremely active from the beginning, despite that the, the uh, larger organization was cautious about uh, participating. So it's, uh, it's not just the tension, of course, between... It's not just a rhetorical tension, I'm saying, between a sort of passional rhetoric versus a rational one. It also has to do with the content of that, and that, that it's not that they could simply, if they passionately argued for politics, that that would sort of, uh, that would stir people up and get them involved. The same questions about the corrupting influence of, and the, and the, the uh, you know, the unnecessity of political participation and the dangers involved in political participation remains an ongoing concern, both for, um, both for leaders and for people down below. So, yeah. let's take a couple of questions. Uh, 
hello. Uh, thank you very much for for your lecture. I I have a question. You you talked very much about the uh, so-called Salafi movement in like religious internal politics point of view. I would like to, I would like you to say a few words about the geopolitics of Salafi movement. Uh, there are some theories uh, that says that the Salafi movements were financed uh, by uh, Gulf countries, mainly dictatorship in the in the Gulf, to weaken the democracy movements in uh, mainly in North Africa, from Egypt to Morocco, uh, because the so-called Islamists that are now in power in North Africa, these are political movement deeply rooted in the society uh, that worked for many decades. They represent the middle class. Uh, they're like doctors, lawyers. They're, let's say, moderate. They accept the uh, democracy, let's say, at least for the moment. Uh, and uh, what, 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 uh, what's your answer about that? Thank you very much. Uh, so my question was, I mean, looking at your presentation of ethical discourse, I was reminded of Tal Saad's chapter on public criticism in Saudi Arabia. Uh -huh. And I was thinking, even if uh, these sheikhs don't get power, do you think we could be seeing in this post-Mubarak era the vitality of a similar kind of paradigm of uh, public criticism? Where, you know, uh, these sheikhs, even if they don't have power to author the law, they'll be able to have authority in evaluating the state on the basis of the Quran and the Sunnah, similar to Saudi Arabia. Lady back there. Hi, thank you so much for speaking today. Um, I just wanted to ask that, um, do you think, now that you've, you've suggested that there's a part of the Salafi movement that could become somewhat politicized, do you think that there's a possibility that they could reconcile or make a coalition with the Muslim Brotherhood, even though right now the tensions are really high. Um, you, you claimed earlier on in the lecture that the, their, their differences between, the differences between the Salafi move, movement and the Ikhwan, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, are quite limited because they, they preach similar ideology, ideological-based sort of points. My question is, is, now that there's a tension between the two movements in terms of politics, is there a way that, do you see a way of them reconciling and, and creating a larger coalition and thereby eliminating the moderate secular liberal movements in Egypt? Should I take those? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think those are all good questions. About the, the, the first question about geopolitics and um, you know, when you read about Salafism around the, around the globe, then it's clearly not a, a singular or unified phenomenon. And um, if you look at the history of, you know, the development of Salafism in Egypt, for example, and then you compare it to some of the kind of, or look in Sudan, where it has a very longer, a longer history, as well as in relation to, you know, the, the develops in Saudi Arabia what we probably identify the, it, as a critique of the state, as a critique of what are seen as, you know, failures of the state. Um, 
where elsewhere we have things like al-Qaeda or something, or militant groups that, uh, you know, that either are seeking to overthrow the state or involved in some sort of transnational militant. So it seems to me there's a lot of different things that get slumped on that. In terms of the support of the Gulf, of course, as you probably know, for back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, everyone said it was the support of the Gulf that led to the creation of sort of before Salafism, of Islamic movements in, in Egypt and elsewhere, and that it has a, to counter the sort of secular liberal trends in society. Even though, you know, the, the Brotherhood for many years became one of the strongest proponents of de- democratic transformation for, you know, for 15 years at least, have been quite active in that domain. So I do think Gulf money is, is relevant in very, in different places and they have made, you know, you look in Nigeria, for example, and there's serious, I think, money that comes from the Gulf in order to promote certain forms of Islam, to build mosques, to provide services. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that that pattern of funding has no effects, Zahn. Um, but I think the variety of things are irreducible to sort of a plan dictated and organized by Saudi Arabia. And um, it seems to me that that one has to look, you know, in these individual cases, that the politics of Salafism is not just anti-democracy. Indeed, if you look in Egypt today, you wouldn't just say it's anti-democracy. In fact, what's, you know, what seems clear is that they are, those who want to get very much involved in politics are working within a very, uh, a very traditional political frame. In fact, one of the things people, you know, first noted was they seem so pragmatic. They're willing to sort of engage in politics in the most normal sense, and um, nor are they criticizing the sort of building of uh, institutions of democratic representation and so on. So, where you do find that in some other places. So, um, I think you know one can trace some some things back to the influence of money, but clearly not all. So, I don't think it's like a. I'm not sure it's useful to think of global Salafism. Um, I mean, as I say, what surprises me is that the peoples who, people who now sort of even identify themselves in Egypt as Salafis, um, well, increasingly they are doctors and lawyers and so on. They're, not, they're people from a range of, and, uh, the, and who practice in a range of different kinds of things, forms of entertainment. There's no sort of singular model, it seems to me, and that's, um, and when I emphasize, there's not kind of a sociological category in which all these things sort of cohere into that group, that the same debates central to Salafism also traverse other groups and so on. Uh, also, elements of lifestyle also traverse them. And, and so it's not a... There are all these, if you've looked online, if you look into Salafi in Egypt, there are all these, like, comical Salafi things made by Salafis now about making fun of Salafis, about, you know, how how everyone's scared of us and how... So these, you know, Salafi comics now are like getting into business. So, um, about Nasiha and uh, public criticism, um, I mean, in that, that article, of course, uh, Talal Asad is talking about uh, in the context of criticisms of the state. And so the effectiveness of those criticisms have to do with the receptivity of the state, so, which is not very receptive. Though he was outlining a tradition, that tradition did not have great... Uh, its, its authority is circumscribed. On the other hand, 
clearly the preachers in Egypt do mediate considerable, they do have considerable authority and people look to them as guides and um, not so much about voting in political life it seems to me but in terms of you know people want to know how to live and what's proper to do and and even have questions about you know the revolution should one participate in it and and what's what should one vote now and um, so in that sense they seem to have considerable authority and you know I was always surprised people you find when I lived in Egypt in the 90s, people would often go to get fatwas from sheikhs or to get advice from sheikhs in local mosques. It was extremely common. Or they go to fatwa councils at Al-Azhar or something. It's not an uncommon practice still today that you go and you get opinions on uh, things, issues of concern in your life. So that practice of seeking authoritative opinion remains. Um, the, pa the practice of political criticism which is closer to what Assad was talking about, um, and which presupposes certain kinds of structures of authority being in place, and so on. Um, it seems to me that uh, modern states have done their best to undo what would enable that s those structures of authority. And the, the last, uh, about the reconciliation of the Muslim Brotherhood, and... Uh, where are you right? Oh, there you are. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, there are moves to reconciliation, it seems to me. There are... Uh, it's not just um, that they stand opposed to each other and that when one sees the actual sort of um, daily events in Parliament, they agree on some things and um, vote together in some kinds of decisions and oppose each other in others. So they don't bloat as two blocks who are always calculating, aha, we have, to, we have to curtail the power of the Brotherhood by standing with groups against them and vice versa or something. It seems to me that the, what one sees in actual patterns of voting is a much more pragmatic, call it, and case-by-case and, uh, -case pattern, which could, yes, absolutely easily lead to the formation of a broader shared political orientation against secular, against the sort of secular liberal members of parliament. It does seem to me that's a, absolutely a possibility. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, the, these two new parties I formed, their issues are not, their issues are about, they don't necessarily stand opposed to, uh, you know, for example, secular activists in working on behalf of workers' rights when this party is taking workers' rights as its foundation. And so, on. so they're not in, that interested in promoting either is the Sharia at the basis of the Constitution, but what can we do for workers in these factories? And it's that kind of attitude which is sort of doesn't map on to some simple, well, Salafis always are doing this. And so that's what I'm calling attention. Lady back there, Ryan. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, now, I, first of all, I must say that I identified with what you describe as using Salafism to describe Muslim. I uh, was part of a Muslim organization in the 80s. We had the Iranian Revolution, and then much later on we had the Salman Rushdie uh, affair. Then when we, I was kind of confronted with the uh, almost daily obsession of the West uh, coining 
terms like, first of all, uh, uh, Islamic revolution, we had the fundamentalism, we then had moderate, uh, moderate Muslim, etc. They coined these terms at the Muslim community and then they asked the Muslim community to define it for them. So it was, in a way, almost the same thing we are witnessing. And I'm very grateful that you have given us various nuances and shades of what Salafism is or is not. But given the fact that a revolution is always, all revolutions are always work in progress, so therefore we have to look at whatever position of Salafism or Muslim Brotherhood has to be taken in this light. So rather than a question, I would like you to comment on why is it that up to now we have had so many uh, discussion, debate, analysis by pundits of all shape and form in the West. How come they have never brought those nuances, those various definitions of Salafism? Does it mean that to them or to the West there is only one kind of Muslim, that is the bad Muslim that has to be feared? Thank you. Uh, I have one comment. I think the main difference between the Salafist and the Muslim Brotherhood, the Salafist, uh, in one way or other, are uh, following the Wahhabist uh, in Saudi Arabia and the relationship between the Wahhabist and the king and his family. This is they're not interested in to be to taking the political power, but to have a leader, a king, and they uh, uh, have to decide how the society will be shaped following the, their interpretation of the Islam. This is different from the Muslim brother, brothers. The Muslim brothers from the beginning, from Hassan al-Banna, they were, they were interested to get, finally, the power, also the political power. Hello, my name is Bilal. And I'm a business student here. Uh, my question is about, um, by the way, I'm from Saudi Arabia. So uh, the way they treat in Saudi Arabia uh, for uh, preaching the Islam, uh, they don't do these kind of movements. They just have an institution and they just do whatever they want to do. Uh, because it's a kingdom and it's not democracy. Is, is that kind of application is applicable in Saudi Arabia? What do you think about that? And number two, my second question is about Salafism. Because what I knew, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a learner again. So what I knew, uh, Salafism is something uh, that discriminate uh, to jamaas in uh, Islam, that is Ahl-Sunnah and Wahhabism. Um, what do you think about that? Thank you very much. Just to start with the first question, I think 
if I understand you correctly, and I think I do, that yes, I do think the the dominant sort of vocabulary uh, that we are presented with and that is reinforced by our media and our politics is one that is primarily interested in uh, in highlighting what it sees as the, the uh, dangerous threats that arise from that uh, may be at any moment emerging or looming in the Middle East. So that is, an, that is an overarching force, it seems to me, in the structuring of our vocabulary. And so that's, as you mentioned, when the term, the terms used to describe uh, whether it's Islamic fundamentalists or in various distinctions, and um, those distinctions, though, betray this concern over... Um, what is, you know, what should be grouped together and identified as uh, the source of danger versus that which may be uh, amenable to reformation and so the whole idea of liberal Muslims and so on is, you know, is also driven by, right, there's actual funds in, you know, the, the uh, funding agencies in the United States that support the promotion of both the writings of and talks by who are there seem to be uh, Muslim reformers who are part of a kind of liberal trend, uh, um, whether people like Nasser uh, Hamad uh, Abu Zaid in Egypt, he's dead now, but uh, prior to that, or Surush, or uh, Muhammad Arkun. Uh, figures who they think could provide the basis for a reformulation of Islam. So some of the terms serve to identify what may be the sort of positive uh, agency by which Islam could be transformed in a so-called liberal direction. So there's that concern as well, it seems. So those two, and it's, it makes it very hard for scholars of Islam to, because you have to constantly sort of, you cannot simply reject the vocabulary, but you're always res having to respond to the inadequacies of those terms and how freighted, ideologically freighted they are when you use them. So um, that always seems to me a difficulty and it's one of the, uh, makes it hard to write about the Middle East. Um, the question of the, the, the king and uh, that, that as hobbies that they support the... Um, they, they support the establishment of a king and of a monarchy and so on. Of course, in, in Egypt today, it's not that Salafis would say we want a king in, in right, even... Uh, so it's not a political model, if, right, that is... Um, that they embrace. I don't know if you were saying that. that but they're not interested to take the power. They're interested to influence the, the, the society and the leader to follow them. And that's the difference between them and the Muslims. I don't say that they want to keep no, no, but they, 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 they want a political system and their, their influence will be really obvious in, yes. in the society. That, that question of having, everything resides in that question of having the leader follow them. I mean, that's where all of the politics takes place and so on, right? And what, what would that mean in, in Egypt? How would, what would it mean to both transform a society in accord with the vision that m many of them promote without the agency of the state and yet recognizing the, the fact that there is a state. And so for some of them, the state is a problem, and the state is a problem that 
there's nothing to do because, and, and people like uh, Burhami, they write about geopolitics and say, look, the state is consolidated and anchored. There's no getting rid of it. It will always be a source of corruption. It will always be uh, an obstacle to our goals. And so we must find ways precisely to sort of, you know, uh, work around it. And it's, it's, you cannot imagine, you cannot plan, to, they're not promoting the sort of militancy through which you subvert it because it's not, there's not an alternative of that. It wouldn't be viable and so on. So um, I think you're right. They see that it's, there's a hope that the leader will follow and whatever that, what, what exactly that would mean is very vague and so on. Um, about Saudi Arabia, I, you, you were mentioning at first, I take it, that Saudi Arabia is never, <clears throat> is never uh, pulled out for criticism in terms of the, you know, these entrenched conservative, including anti-democratic kinds of uh, trends, because we like what the role of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so it plays this good role, apparently, in the world that uh, whatever they do is fine. Um, and uh, and you said that you understood Salafism as, as as sort of inspired both in the Ahl Sunnah and in the Wahhabism. Is that right? Uh, there is some discrimination between different sort of forms of Salafism that draw differently from yeah. Ahl Sunnah, and which in Egypt Ahl Sunnah was also influential, and that, which starts as a kind of movement from the the twenties and thirties and so on, right? And uh, um, what Wahhabism means, though, in, in like speaking in Egypt and so on, as, as an analytical term to understand what's going on, I don't find it tells me a lot, right? It seems to be, it covers over some of the interesting distinctions, for example, about, you know, the, the associations being built in, the anti-Christian associations being built in Nigeria today versus what's taking place in Sudan or Egypt. And I don't think those are all just could be usefully thought of as Wahhabism. And maybe you're pointing to the need to distinguish and these various influences that shape them. And I agree that that's... It's clearly Saudi Arabian sheikhs have played a predominant... And they are the preeminent background thinkers for many of the Salafis. They refer to them as, particularly Albani, but also as others, as really the intellectual progenitors, those who have revived an earlier tradition that had disappeared through an engagement with particularly Ibn Taymiyyah's work and so on. So there is a lot of appreciation for the role of those sheikhs had from the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. That, uh, um, that doesn't just have to do about money, but that is because these, these people were anti the Saudi government, and it's the Saudi government who was promoting the so-called Wahhabism yeah. globally. So there's, there's, there are tensions there as well. All right. Okay, uh, I think I can take one more question, but that's, uh, that's basically it. Um, so I'll have to pick and choose. Uh, well, the person who had hand up first is uh, back there. Um, so I wanted to, um, you to discuss a little bit more about how, um, in terms of thinking about how piety is performed um, and how people uh, are kind of told um, how, like, kind of what advice people are given in terms of kind of performing this kind of pious lifestyle. And also, um, how kind of this is necessarily juxtaposed against some sort of idea of an anti-pious lifestyle or kind of what, what piety is kind of uh, contrasted against um, and kind of how this is constructed in your experience or your research that you've been doing. Oh, what 
an anti-pious lifestyle, you just you turn on the TV and you and you're, you. Apparently, it's visible all over. Um, a lot of uh, no people have a more distinct idea about what violates sort of precepts of piety, and that has to do with forms, for example, forms of entertainment that involve you know that involve kinds of nudity or f- forms of music that is seen to inculcate uh, sexual passions that um, you know, what gets selected out is a variety of Western cultural forms that seem to uh, engender in people attributes, desires, sensibilities that, one con- that run contrary to pious comportment, whether those are sexual or capitalistic or uh, otherwise. Um, so there's a, there's a huge literature and popular, you know, of, uh, and the subject of many sermons is pointing out to people all of the threats that surround them in terms of uh, threats to pop, threats to uh, Islamic virtue. And people always have tales to tell of, you know, well, I saw this happening today in the street, and I saw this uh, sign that had this, and I heard that in uh, Canada they're doing this, and, um, and so on. So those kind of ways of both creating an object, as you're saying, as you're phrasing it, Right, is is simply part of popular discussion, and there's an and there's an elaborate sort of critical discourse on that kind of threat, how to identify it, and how to defend yourself against it. In terms of how piety is encouraged, like when I talked about that Dawa movement, it takes many different forms, and some of it is you simply, right, when you encourage people to stop smoking, to stop, um, uh, to you know, to they should be going to the mosque more often. They should not be swearing. So part of it has to do with a kind of everyday life activism with one's friends, with one's family, and with people, the acquaintances one meets in the street, where one reminds them. It can simply being, it can simply be invoking God or, or you know, doing zikr or reminding people of God through customary expressions that one remembers God. That in itself is a form because it gets others to remember too. You know, if you so if in public that you speak in a way that reminds others and therefore calls them to the act of remembrance so that they should do it. But it also then takes more activist forms where you might, uh, as I say, either addressing, going and speaking to strangers to encourage them to stop some of the things they're doing or have they gone to prayer or let's sit together and talk about our love for, uh, you know, things Islamic or all of those are ways. And then the building institutional bases like... You're providing uh, medical services that are done in accord with where people who are dying are treated in accord with what are understood the sort of requirements for a proper death within Islam, where, where someone's there to get them to pronounce the shahada at the moment of death, and things like that. Or providing financial services for kids through mosques, through for uh, if they need operations or if they need uh, money for textbooks or... That can be seen as part of the way in which the strength of the community and the Islamic community with the mosque as its hub and its associated institutions is, is built and developed. So the notion of, that notion of encouraging others to, popular, to piety took on in the 70s a, a, vast, a sort of vastly expanded definition to include all the things that sustain neighborhoods 
um, conceived of as uh, as the uh, the collective uh, vehicle of popular virtue. You know? So that, that could be both medical, could be uh, all kinds of welfare assistance, financial assistance, edu- lot of educational assistance, I mean, providing lessons, and so on. That can all be conceived of as a kind of strengthening popular piety because it strengthens the community and and it's and those things then could be seen as whatever that does strengthen that community was understood to be part of creating the conditions of piety if people are hungry or they're not being educated properly or and so on then it becomes more difficult to sustain the conditions of collective practice that that piety requires so anyway thank you for listening and, and thank Speaking. you very much thank you.